0: Now turn with me in your Bible tonight to uh, Psalm 98 Psalm 98 And we'll read together the nine verses O oh, sing unto the Lord A new song For he hath done marvellous things His right hand and his holy arm Hath gotten him The victory. The Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly showed in the sight of the heathen. He hath remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice. And sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with the harp. With the harp and the voice of a psalm. With trumpets and sound of cornet. Make a joyful noise before the Lord the King. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together. Before the Lord, for he hath come to judge the earth with righteousness, shall he judge the world and the people with equity. Amen. We know that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text tonight is taken from Psalm 98 and verse 1 and it reads as follows. O sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. And my subject tonight is the sound and singing of the greatest victory in the world. Now, most of us, if not all, but certainly true of some, are fascinated by history, especially the bits about world-famous battles. We could think of the Battle of Waterloo when Wellington defeated Napoleon. We could, of of course, think about the famous Battle of the Saw. We could also think about the Battle of Britain and talk about them. But tonight, being the 12th of July in 2015, I want us to think for a time of the Battle of the Boy. I want to take you away back to the 1st of July in 1690. In history, when Charles II died, his brother James ascended the throne of England. Now, Charles was a Protestant... James was a Roman Catholic. And as an ardent Roman Catholic, after his coronation, it soon became evident that he intended uh, to reintroduce Roman Catholicism into the religion of England once again. In Ireland, the same thing was to take place. James appointed a man by the name of Triconnell to the position of supreme authority in Ireland. Ireland, remember, was one country. Soon Protestant judges were superseded by Roman Catholic ones. Roman Catholic attorneys were introduced into the Privy Council. The ranks of the army were filled with Roman Catholics to the displacement of their Protestant counterparts. The office of the Lord Chancellor and the uh, Attorney General uh, were were all uh, reappointed as Roman Catholics. And all this took place in the year 1685. The aim, of course, was very straightforward and clear. The suppression of biblical Protestantism and the ascendancy of Roman Catholicism, its dogmas and doctrines in the British Isles. So three years later in 1688 the people of England invited William of Orange from Holland over to be their king. Now I want to point out that William was the nephew of uh, James II and Charles I on his mother's side. And William of course was also married To King James's eldest daughter, Mary. The invite to be king was sent out in July 1688. Four months later, uh, William arrived in Devon. They brought with them 20,000 strong men as an army. They came in 250 vessels. And on their marched toward London. They met with little resistance. King James fled over to Ireland. Both William and Mary became joint sovereigns in uh, James's place. Now, King William, we're told from historians, was a small, short man, probably about five foot in height. He was also, we're told, a sick man, someone who suffered from asthma, uh, someone who also had a bad cough due to consumption, and we told that he was a very sombre, austere man with a, a large hooked nose. I don't know what relevance the large hooked nose has, but that's what historians say. Uh, they also point out that he was a staunch Protestant, being brought up by a, a, a strict Presbyterian tradition. And therefore he was uh, a strict Calvinist. It was his faith in God. That kept them going despite uh, difficulties of height and despite uh, sickness and despite other dark situations that surrounded him, whether it was asthma or or his consumption. He was also tormented with headaches, we're told. He was a man of faith in Jesus Christ. His faith wasn't in his talent or his ability, his military powers, or or even his strategy in several wars against Louis XIV. It was his faith in God that was the overriding principle in the whole of his life. Now, let me just ask you tonight, uh, have you faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know Christ as Lord and Saviour? Have you looked alone to him for salvation? If you notice in our reading in Psalm 98, the word salvation is mentioned in 2 uh, and it's also mentioned in verse 3. You see, remember the Bible says in Acts 4 and verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby uh, we can be saved. And for those that do not know Christ as Lord and Saviour, they're still in their sin. And the danger is that they'll be lost in their sin. And the reality is that they've got their back to heaven and their face toward that awful, terrible place the Bible calls hell. And I'm not asking you tonight about your church membership or your church affiliation. I'm asking you tonight a very simple, straightforward question. Have you faith in Jesus Christ as Lord? Saviour. Many who follow, of course, history and rejoice in such a figure as William of Orange and rejoice in the Williamite settlement and even talk about the glorious revolution that took place in 1688 and 1690, they have lost sight of the fact that William of Orange was a man who had his faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. Now if you notice in our text tonight, in verse 1 of Psalm 98, it mentions the last word is victory. And the word victory is mentioned 12 times in the Bible. And of course we could think about famous battles and we could think about victory lost or victory won. And as we've said, you could talk about the Battle of Waterloo, the Battle of the Somme, the Battle of Britain. And the principle's the same. There was a battle fought. There was a battle won. And of course, there are many, many glorious victories in the world regarding the battle. And when I think tonight of the Battle of the Boyne, I think of a king sent on a mission I think of a king sent to defeat the the, the the designs of the enemy. I think of a king who, who, who ushered in a glorious victory and praise and prayer was offered to God. And we could talk tonight about the sound of that victory. We could talk about the signal of victory. We could talk about the singing of victory. And yet here it is, the the, the greatest victory in the world. As far as the sound of it, as far as the singing of it, is here in the Scriptures. Listen again to these words. O sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gotten him the victory. Now, uh, three, three things very simply tonight. I want us to think, first of all, of the road to victory. You see, way back in the 14th of June, 1690, William's army landed at a place called Carrickfergus. There were 700 vessels in the harbour. There were thousands of men. His arrival was graciously and joyously welcomed by the inhabitants of this province. By and large, the people of the province of Ulster uh, looked to William to come and deliver them from the tyranny of the enemy. From Carrick, he rode on to Belfast. He was met there by a captain called Robert Lees, and of course, great crowds of ordinary people uh, followed William and his army. He, he had stayed for five days, Days Or five nights in Belfast Castle Bonfires were lit Cannons were sounded People volunteered to enlist in the army And very soon of course the army's ranks were growing all the time He attended church on Sunday On the Monday he received a a deputation of Presbyterian ministers from the province And again he heard a word of God preached Prayer was offered. On Thursday he left for Lisburn. He moved on to Hillsborough and then eventually to Loch Brickland, where he met with his army. He met with his general, Scumberg. By this time there were 36,000 men. The 25th of June they were in Urine. The 27th they were as far as Dundalk. By the 30th of June they had reached the famous banks of the boy and of course as you know it was in the 1st of July 1690 that the famous battle took place and of course that battle had to do as far as William was concerned being a man of God a man of faith in Jesus Christ was deliverance from the tyranny and the false teaching and the opposition of the gospel uh, from uh, Roman Catholicism to save the people to the glory of God. What a glorious journey from Holland to England to Carrick to end up on the banks of the Boyne in the middle of Ireland. You know, let me lift it up. You see, there's always a road to victory. And think of our greater King, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a journey he made. He came from the splendors and glory of heaven. He disentangled himself from the bosom of the Father. And he he came via the Virgin's womb to this very earth. He, he, He was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. And from the manger, he went all the way to the cross. And Christ made that journey. Voluntarily chose to make it, wasn't forced. All with the design and purpose to save men and women from their sin and from the power of Satan and turn them unto God. You see, there was no other way for salvation. As we've already said, Acts 4 and 12, neither is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And of course, as you know, salvation is not in the ritual of the church or in its ceremonies. It's not in the good works of our own hands. It's not in our own self-righteousness. Because our righteousness, all the good things that we do, is as filthy rags in the sight of the Lord. Salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. The Lord Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost As Timothy says, this is a faithful saying. Worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. There's the road to victory. Let me ask you, have you received Christ as Lord and Saviour? Are you full of the joy of the knowledge of the Saviour? Do you count it a privilege and an honour to know him? To have heard from him, to have seen him with the eye of faith, to knelt down before him like Thomas and said, My Lord and my God. Not only think about the road to victory, but think about the Redeemer of victory. You see, there's no doubt here that the inference in the text is that there's a battle has been fought. Sing unto the Lord and you saw. We'll come to that in a moment. Why? Look at the word for. That means because he hath done marvellous things. We could ask, well, what things? And then it says, his right hand and his holy arm have gotten him the victory. In other words, this is something that he has done. This is a a, a a conflict that he's engaged in, and he's emerged victorious. William's first task on the 30th of June, uh, 1690, was to go with a few of his chosen officers and view the enemy position. He wanted to know their strength. Now, while they were there in the banks of the Boyne, on the south side, of course, was the Jacobite army, and one of the officers in the Jacobite army, he too was having a little nosy to learn about William's uh, position and William's strength, uh, and he recognised uh, uh, William, the Prince of Orange, and secretly, unknown to William and the few officers, they, they sat down and enjoyed a bite to eat and having a chat, and, uh, and um, all of a sudden, uh, whenever they got up to go, uh, there was two cannons fired. Uh, one of the cannons hit uh, Prince George of Hanover. Uh, sadly he was killed off his horse. Uh, and the other cannon hit William on his right shoulder. He slouched on his horse, we're told. Uh, he fell forward as if he was dead, and there was a cheer went up. They could hear the cheer in the Jacobite army. And it was reported to Louis the Fourteenth in France uh, and also to the Pope, uh, that William of Orange was killed at the Boyne, that he had died. Now, William, of course, was just stunned. He, he slouched in his horse, that's true. But after a short time, he, he rose up again in the saddle. And this is what he said to his officers. I thank God that that cannon shot didn't come any closer. See, the Lord was at work here, providentially. I have no doubt in my mind about that. We'll hear about that in just a moment. The battle, of course, was planned. It took place on the 1st of July, 1690. Count Scomberg launched a sham attack on the right flank. An elite regiment with William charged the middle. And there was another attack, of course, on the left flank. There was the sound of drums. There was the sound of lamb eggs. No doubt the sound of flutes. And of course, it broke William's Hardy, he, he later recorded, to see many of his chosen guards all around him fall. He he, he lost Count Stomberg in that uh, attack. And, uh, and he talked later on about, my poor guards. Uh, William uh, joined in the crossing of what is known as the Dry Bridge. He was in the company of the Enniskillen Dragoons. They were now, by this time, his personal guard. A trooper by the name of McKinley said that they would do anything on behalf of his majesty, William of Orange. The the crossing was deep. It was difficult. Many died. uh, But the battle was fought. And amazingly, William was spared, even though two or three bullets hit. One hit his gun. Uh, Another hit his um, boot that that he was wearing. Uh, And yet... The, the, the tremendous thing is that in the purpose and the providence of God... God gave William victory over James and the Jacobite army. And that victory, of course, changed the future of the people of Ireland, the people of England, and could we even say the people of Europe. And that victory ushered in what we know today is the Williamite settlement and, of course, all the constitutional democracy that has flown from that. The Redeemer of victory. There was one who fought. And one who won. And it says his right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. Now, now William of course attributed that victory to the Lord. And we could think tonight of a greater enemy. We could think of Satan himself. We can think about the power of sin. We can think about hell and the grave. And how these enemies all came and fought with Christ at the place called Calvary. And it was on the cross, of course, that Christ was crucified. It was on the cross that Christ died. And here's really what we could say, the greatest battle that was ever fought. The battle with sin and Satan. The battle with hell and the grave. And of course... You know the outcome. Because the Bible tells us there in 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in the verse uh, 3. It says, For I delivered unto you first of all that what you also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and he was seen of Cesus. Do you see the truth? He rose again the third day. According to the scriptures. There's the whole gambit of Christ's resurrection. His death was not a defeat. Yes. He died. And I'm sure when he died. Hell probably rejoiced. He's dead. Just like they thought that William was dead. But Christ was really dead. And you can almost see the glee. At least I try to picture it. In the face of the devil. And the demons in hell. And yet. Three days after he died, he rose again from the dead. And he rose in victory. And he rose in triumph over his enemies. And he now lives in the power of an endless life. And you and I, of course, can have a new life in him. There's the Redeemer of victory. Now, one final thought: rejoicing in victory. It says, oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. And this is what drew me to the text. As I said, there's 12 verses in the uh, Bible with the word victory on it. I had the word victory in my mind of thinking about a message for tonight. And, And these words, oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Isn't that a privilege for the child of God? What are we rejoicing in? We're rejoicing in the Lord's victory over the enemy. We stress again, the cross of Christ wasn't a defeat. If you turn in your Bible there to Colossians chapter 2, and if you look with me very carefully at verses 14 and 15, you'll see what happened, of course, at the cross of Christ. It says there, Colossians 2 verse 14, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. You see, everything's connected and tied into the cross. And it says in verse 15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. In himself on the cross. It was the triumph and victory of the cross over his enemies. That's why, of course, it says in Psalm 68 that that he led captivity captive. What he did was he conquered his enemies on the cross, and he led them captive in his resurrection. Remember, the apostle Paul was able to say, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature all things have passed away and all things have become new and of course that reference to a new creature speaks about a radical and a redeeming and reforming change the man in Christ who was once without Christ brought into Christ through the new birth he's made a new creature a new creature through the regenerating power and work of the holy spirit and he's given many things he's given a new name he's given a new nature But here's another thing that he's given. He's given a new song. The first mention of the new song is in Psalm 33, verse 3. The last mention of the new song is in Revelation 14, verse 3. It's the song of the Lamb. A new song in the Bible is mentioned seven times. Seven, of course, is the number of perfection and as you think is rejoicing in victory think of this title it's a new song every song is a title hasn't it even our hymns have titles the songs of the world and of the devil have titles but here's a new song a new song of course is one that's never been heard before and why is it a new song because he hath done marvellous things. It marked the great things that God has done. It, it marked the, the triumph and victory that the Lord has had over the enemy. The song was really written to mark that victory. So it was given the title, A New Song. And the exhortation is, O oh, sing unto the Lord a, a new song. Think of the theme of the song. It commemorates the victory that's just been won. In other words, the person who's participating in the singing, he's brought into a tremendous blessing. Because this is to do with the commemoration of victory. It's really a commemorative song then. Aye. And notice the time of the song. It's after the battle has been fought. And the victory's won. Isn't that what happened in Exodus 15? Uh, Whenever uh, God destroyed Pharaoh and the armies of Israel, the horse and the rider have they thrown into the sea, the Lord have done uh, marvellous things for the children of Israel. The Lord has triumphed. And it was after that that Miriam and others took up the song and sang praises unto the Lord. Their hearts were full of joy. They were thrilled. They were excited. They felt they were a privileged people. Notice one final thing. Think of the triumph of the song. It wasn't just any song, it was a new song. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. In other words, this is what they were to choose. They, they didn't want any other song, it wasn't any just particular song that they were to sing. It was the new song. It was the song that marked victory. That was the theme. The time to sing was nigh after the battle is fought. And it was triumphant. It was precious to them because it came at a high price. As they thought of a battle fought and victory won, they were thinking about the spilling of blood. And of course when we think of Calvary and think of Jesus Christ and the cross we think of how victory came at a high price. The shedding of his precious blood. Because without the shedding of blood there's no remission. And isn't that precious to every believer? Precious, precious blood of Jesus shed in Calvary. Precious, precious blood of Jesus shed for rebels. Shed for sinners. Praise God. Shed for me. It's very precious. It's personal. Aye. And it's powerful. So often we get downcast. So often we develop a defeatist attitude and spirit. So often we allow our hearts and minds to be full of doubt and fear. Things that are happening in the present. Things that are going to happen tomorrow. Things that could happen next week and, uh, and next year. And you know, one thing that can help us in life's pathway is to fill our mind that we can rejoice in victory. The victory of Christ and his cross work. Let that be the new song of the believer. Isn't that what Psalm 40 says? Finishes or starts with. Uh, of course, it's um, tied into what I'm saying here. It says, He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings, and I put a new song in my mouth. There's one of those references. My mouth. What did he put? Even praise unto our God. Notice, many shall see it. You see, there'll be something about our countenance. Our voice mightn't be heard, but there'll be something about us. People, what are you so happy about? You've got the joy of the Lord, you've got a spirit of contentment. You're at peace with God and shall trust in the Lord. There's a powerful element to this triumph. Can we not rejoice in the victory? Here we are in Northern Ireland, 12th (coughs) of July, 2015, and there's celebration and there's rejoicing in a victory that was given by God, of a battle fought and won by William Prince of Orange that changed the course of history. And we're so thankful to God for that. But here's a greater battle that was fought and won, the battle of Christ and the cross and Mount Calvary. And he conquered his enemies. And surely we can rejoice in his victory. And make that the triumph of our spirit. No matter what we face. I leave these few thoughts with you tonight. Thank you for listening. You've been so patient. I I must confess I I found it hard to uh, incorporate all I wanted to say in the message. But I trust that these few words will be a blessing to your heart. At this night.